After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. First off, what'd you guys think about that uh, that mountain lion meat from last night? Very good. Yeah, I thought it was delicious. Cougar meat. Yeah. Very even my, good. Even my mother-in-law ate it. Yeah. I I was surprised how tender it was. That recipe. Well, it's a it, you know the chef Jacques Pepin. Mm-hmm. I call him Jack oh. Pepin. Oh yeah. He uh, that's his little sauce. Well, Chinese what? Chinese five spice powder. Uh huh sauce but i like foopled it which is even more than quadrupling it and he just does he does it with pork uh-huh and just you know kind of braises it for a little teeny bit yeah. in the oven but i like with that cougar meat except for the loins that cougar meat you got to waylay it with some long cooking yeah because we did that that's just like a roast you we know did I mean? that loin for that one dinner and it was it was a little dry yeah we grilled it yeah and it was a little dry now the part of the loin that has the fat on it is different because the fat on the the lion fat is good, mm-hmm. real good. Yeah, I almost felt like between all the chunks that I had and I've eaten over the last year that the I didn't like the backstrap as much. The loin you liked that roast last night, didn't you? Well, yeah, because it has just more fat incorporated yeah. in it. That was a fatty that, hunk that man. you're getting to use where that backstrap is very, very lean, you know? And um, it's just like, no matter how you braise it or do whatever, if you braise a fatty piece of meat and you braise that lean loin, the lean loin still tastes drier. It's drier in your mouth, you know? You, you can stop it with sauce as much as you want, right? Yep, yep. It definitely benefited from that long, slow cook. Well, you'll notice that when, like, in my slow cooker... It was only the sauce in there, which is like five spice, Chinese five spice powder, soy, ketchup, ginger, garlic, sherry vinegar. That sauce only came up like a third the way on that roast, which is probably like a three pound hunk of a lion's back leg. And I flipped it a couple times in there. Then the end mashed it up. Not mashed up, but broke it apart so that it all took a little bath toward the end so that it all had a little sauce bath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was good. It's good, man. I like it. 
And then, um, impressions about squidding. Well, you've squidded. Yeah, you've squidded. I've been down there Cal, a couple times. First timer. First time squidder. Yeah. Well, when you say you, scene. that was uh, Andy Radulowski. Oh, I haven't done intros yet. We're joined by Chef Andrew Radulowski, who I have known for a bazillion <laughs> years. And real quick before we get to that, I want to touch on me and Andy's first wild game meal. Only yeah. kind of a wild game meal. We were having like a little party <laughs> back in the probably around 1995, yeah, 1996. Was. We were yeah. throwing a party because we were living in the same sort of weird flop house. We were living in a house that had four people living in it, none of whom were on the lease. <laughs> like this house had a very, like a constantly evolving sort of cast of characters who lived there. Yeah, there's many people went through that place. Yeah. And we borrowed a pig roaster from my mom's neighbor, I think. Or was it? I yeah, think I borrowed it. Yeah, you, know. you did borrow it. I had to like drag it an hour to where we lived. And then we had, so we had a pit, like we were getting a whole pig. But then me and my brother were out fishing steelhead or salmon. Was it the fall? It was the fall. We were coming back from fishing salmon up on the Pier Marquette River. And the dude in front of us ran a deer over. He didn't want it, so we took the whole deer and then drove it a couple hours down to Grand Rapids, cut the deer up in the garage, and then sewed the whole deer with baling wire inside the pig. Yeah. And it came out phenomenal. Unbelievable, man. <laughs> Unbelievable. Like, pork fat basted deer hunks. That was me and Poots. That must have been a pretty big uh, pig. Oh, it was a big pig. Yeah, we fit the whole deer in it. I can't remember we boned it. Like, we boned a lot of it out. Yeah, it was in pieces, I think. Yeah. But we got most of it in there. Crammed in there, sewed it up with wire. But the funny thing is, is this <laughs> all happened right on the corner of a very busy intersection in the middle of Grand Rapids. Who was yeah, like, the instigator? With the party? With the the uh, pig turducken situation. <laughs> I don't know. We just had a... We were already cooking a pig, and then we picked up a roadkill deer and well that's the key to the situation is having somebody who's like yes i will follow through with your stupid idea <laughs> i have no recollection did, did we wrap something in hog wire too yeah or chicken wire did we roll that pig up in chicken wire no because it was in a roaster i yeah. think we just put that chunked up deer in there and just sewed, Bailey, it, yeah, shut sewed it shut with, with baling wire and threw it in a roaster what that's happened awesome. was See, I want to tell the story, but I don't want to reveal my preferred alias that I use anytime I have to have a social media account. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't reveal my preferred alias. Anyways, we heard the down, like in our neighborhood, we heard that you could block off your road in order to have a family reunion. Basically, we were trying to, we were trying to elude getting the party broken up by the cops. So we thought like, oh, we'll register as a family reunion. We just use the name from the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> <laughs> but that never registered it anyways. Just yeah. had our yeah. So anyways, that, that yeah, I mean, that's how far that's how far me and Andy go back. But you were gonna say yeah. So Andy is squidded because you're a Pacific Northwesterner. Yeah. Well, you've done, you've done a bit of squidding for the last twenty years. Twenty years. Yeah. Andy lives out on a lonely little island called San Juan Island, <laughs> where he catches fish and cooks. And then uh, we'll touch on that some more. Cal, initial impressions of squid jigging. Loved it, man. I mean, the whole scene. Like, 
the whole Asian community down there just chain smoking away and uh, really extremely limited communication, even amongst us. And it's all about just like harvest and it's dark, you know, city sounds going around and fairies moving around. Get a contact buzz from cigarettes outside. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, generator exhaust fumes. Yeah. That little combo. It was great, man. I loved it. You were lucky because we kind of had a, had a translator last night. There was you catch yeah, now and then, you catch now that and then, one dude that, that that was you know had some English. No, I've now and then had the privilege of sitting next to yeah. Most of the guys at Jake Squitter, uh, I did a story on this years ago for Outside, and most of the guys I interviewed, well, like virtually all the guys I interviewed were from Vietnam, born like born Vietnamese, Cambodia, Laos. And the Philippines tends to be, I think that crew where we were, I think that crew is is almost all Vietnamese that goes down there, I believe. So yeah, you don't get a lot of, it's hard to, you kind of can hack your way through some communication. But now and then I've been next to guys who speak pretty good English, then you can sort of get the inside scoop. Well, I just don't, you know, like most little, like if I kept relating it to being on like a busy steelhead river. I mean, for the most part, generalization for sure, but for the most part, if you are willing to communicate with somebody, it is possible, um, but you're still not going to exchange information. It's like, oh, what kind of, what color, <laughs> whatever are you running? How far down are you? Most guys aren't going to tell you exactly what they're you know, consistently hooking up on, and it'd be the same in the little fish and pier community that we were in last night. Uh, but what's different there is you you're not allowed any personal space on the squid pier. Yeah. Yeah, I was getting crowded out in that corner. <laughs> if you get if you start tuning them, people will I mean, it's not measured in feet. It's the, the amount of space you're given like where your line hits the water is given inches. Yes. People will just drop in. I think too though the difference is that uh you know, on a, in a steelhead hole, you might be looking at, you know, what, 100 fish if it's a lot in there. And a lot of yeah. times there could be a few. There we're talking about thousands of yeah. squid. Probably tens, so, probably tens of thousands of squids. Really? Yeah. You think it's that many? I mean, I don't, I don't, no, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's a pile of them. And you're, when they're in, when the, when the school comes through, I mean, I mean it's got to be. I mean, just looking at a quick, a few quick online photos of like, you know, squid mating it's yeah okay big globs but yeah i mean and you're still like fishing into the abyss right you have your big bright light um but that doesn't do anything for the angler's vision at all it's like you're just illuminating murky you know zero visibility water yeah you're running like a twenty thousand lumen light but you still gotta use a headlamp to tie a knot yeah oh i mean yeah, so I, it just it's got all the all the things I like about fishing, you know, lots of lots of variables to figure out, um, but still tons of opportunities. So. I like the multicultural bent to it too because I spent my whole life fishing with dudes who look just about like me. Yeah, yeah. No matter where I go, there I am. <laughs> you know, and it's like to fish with people who are coming uh, who have a completely different like American experience is nice, man. Yeah, and then when that dude hauled up the crab. Last night, I was kind of giving him the thumbs up. He He's was stoked. Like, everybody's, yeah. cheer, everybody's cheering this guy on. He <laughs> caught a rock crab on his squid. 
Well, he was special because he had caught a rock crab two nights in a row. Two nights in a row. Yeah, Yeah, that was cool. Just the whole scene itself. Sometimes you kind of get lost a little bit. You're kind of focusing on looking down at that water and and jigging. Then all of a sudden you look up and there's a jumbo jet going over. There's there's a ferry. You kind of forget that you're right in that whole crazy downtown city. We bumped into like the two business guys. Yeah. Older business guys on the way out. Yeah. Like, well, how'd you guys do? And then there's the fancy bar across the street. And I was like, nobody in there. Yeah, don't don't say too much because that that little there's All a right. lot of well, yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. kind of a little like I kind of like it. Yeah, for sure. And I have noticed mugs out on the piers that I feel like weren't out on the piers that long ago. Okay, gotcha. Like I'm I'm afraid of a from talking about it too much that you you could I feel as though that you could instigate a demographic shift for sure, an unwelcome demographic shift. For sure. Out there. That's where your staying power would come into play. What do you mean? I think folks are like, yeah, this sounds great, and just dip their toe in. Mm. You'll get real frustrated. Real fast, yeah. Yeah. You got to do a lot of jigging before you start kind of getting the basics. I mean, unless you got someone standing there giving you the what's up, you could show up and just be kind of like, what? what's not happening here? Because squid don't hit. Squid, uh, it's not a hit. Fondle. They fondle. <laughs> Fingering. <laughs> they fondle. They, and it's not a hook. It's a what you're impaling the squid on wires, and he doesn't hit. He's he's down there fondling, toying with the thing. But super fun, and because of all your guys' knowledge, I felt like a. A squid jigging pro in about 40 minutes, you know? Oh, no. Yesterday, it was a big... I think I've been out four or five times prior to last night. And yesterday was a much different uh, feel for being part of the Steve Rinella's squid jigging crew. I mean, broke through, yeah. Yeah. That's what it felt like. It's like, okay. And Steve had told me he'd sort of had a breakthrough a couple weeks ago. He caught like 49 in an hour with the two kids. Yeah, that's with two kids, which is like... Less good than you do by one person, <laughs> right? You know, that's like a that's not like three rods in the water. That's like point seven five rods in the water, right? Yeah, I think the first time I went out, I didn't catch any, and the dude right next to me was just one after another pulling them out, and it yeah, it can be frustrating. Do you make you want to snap your rod yeah. over your knee and yeah. throw it in the water? It's like and how? leave. <laughs> and I look, look at his jig, almost exact same setup, and it's like, how is this guy just pulling one after another, and I'm just sitting here. Because he knows when a squid's <laughs> looking at his jig. Yeah, yeah true. He's not, that's what I was saying about like walleye last night, how they don't so much hit is look at it. Yeah. Like that, he just like, I'm st- like I understand it more and more all yeah. the time. And I, lo- I, I got to see the flip side of the coin last night where when we were packing up, like a big part of that peer community came over. They were looking in our buckets to see exactly how we did, and then they were looking at the jigs. Mm-hmm. It was and the I first just, time I've ever been a, the subject of envy. The first time I've ever been the subject of envy on a squid pier. You can see it on their faces being like, yep, that jig is no different than mine. Yeah. Like, I just, that's, I love that part of it. Yeah, it was just, it was like a 180 from the last few times. Like, there's like, nobody's paying attention to us. We're just watching everybody else catch squid after squid after squid. And this time, 
The gal walks up, looks in her bucket. She looks at me and she's like, huh? Seven pounds, pretty good. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Yeah, I didn't like that aspect of it, man. I like, I like flying low out there under the radar. But Yanni, last thing I want to talk about, this is something that you brought up to me that really breaks my heart. Um, you're saying that like... Well, it's because you haven't let me explain myself yet. Well, I'm giving you a chance now. Can I, can I tee it up? Yeah. Yanni found out that you can buy frozen squid for about four fifty a pound, and now like squid jigging less. No, I didn't say less. Yeah. You you put that word in my mouth. I just said it changed. You know, like my my sort of perspective about it. Because that's you know one thing that I enjoy. I think about whether it's fishing, hunting, whatever. You're sort of out there getting things that maybe not everybody can put their hands on. Exclusive. Right? You like the exclusivity. Yeah, it makes it special. Yeah, like when you're out fishing spot prawns and those things are 40 bucks a pound. Mm-hmm. Or what's a king salmon going for nowadays? Yeah, you'd spend a lot of money. I don't know. I mean, you think about the marketing that goes in, into uh, like the Copper River. I mean, that stuff comes out at what? $50, $60 a pound when it first, when the season first hits. It's unbelievable. You like that. You like either that people can't get it, like with mountain lion. If you want to eat some mountain lion, either you got to get it or have a buddy who. Right, it's hard to find. Yeah, but Joe Blow anybody, any kind of that's the thing with saltwater fishing though. Freshwater fishing, you're catching a lot of fish that there's no way to go get it. Like there's no way you, there's no commercial way to get it. Yeah, unless you're Great Lakes. It depends on the species. So yeah, you could be fishing lake whitefish, which you can get. You can get walleye. You can get rainbow trout. You can get lake perch. Depend, you know. And then there's all the aquaculture fish. But there are a shitload of species that you can't go buy. Morel mushrooms would be kind of somewhere in between. In between. You can buy them. That's another thing. You can buy it, right? Yeah. So there's things that, there's game meats, like lion being a great example. There's many more. Moose, you know, that you can't purchase. There's no way to go buy it. Then you have, yeah, illegal. Just there's no commercial market for it. So there's that. Then there's the stuff that anyone could go buy, and when you catch it, and you're like, holy shit, I just caught a $500 fish that feels pretty good. Like, if you go catch a 30-pound king, you got a valuable fish. Or a 100-pound halibut is a valuable fish. Then there's stuff that you go catch, which is a lot of ocean fish, that's, like, really not that expensive and pretty widely available. I don't think about it too much. Would I prefer that squid were worth a hundred bucks a pound? Sure. Hmm. That would, why not? It would probably attract attention, though. Then it might. It might be attention. the reason why you can walk down there every night and find a spot on the fishing piers because they don't have that much value. Because even if you get a limit, when you get a limit, but here's the thing: frozen squid. If you get a, li- a limit, ten pounds. So you could feasibly walk down, and if you got the time to put in and you're good at it, you could walk down, and every time you walk off the pier, you're walking off with a fresh version of something that has a commercial value of less than 50 bucks if you get a limit. What's the limit of squirrels worth? Can't sell squirrel. There's no commercially available squirrel, but what would a limit of squirrels really be worth? If you rolled up to a guy and said, hey, man, I got five squirrels. What do you give me for them? 
Well, people don't have people haven't had assigned a very high value to it. They should. They don't know any better. So you're really not going to get very far unless, so it's you, unknown. unless you ran into me. <laughs> and you like, wouldn't want to buy some other guy's squirrels. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But, you know, I know that when I did some uh, bartering back in the day, some trading. Before you realized it was illegal? Yeah. With elk meat, I mean, I put a very high value on that. I mean, $100 a pound. You do know it's illegal to barter elk yeah. meat. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do it anymore. Now I just give it away. But I think what the yeah, squirt- you give it's like like it's hard to define, right? Because yeah. I'll, for instance, I recently said to my brother, who really missed because he lives in Alaska, he really misses panfish. They don't have panfish, so because we fish a lot of perch, I said, "Hey man, when you come down for Christmas, bring a cooler because I froze you a huge block of perch fillets." Mm-hmm. And he's like, "I'm bringing a cooler anyways because I'm bringing down a bunch of king salmon for you." Now, I don't imagine someone's going to kick my door down and arrest me. And no. there's not like, a, I never said to him, I'll give you X and you'll give me X. It's just that like a, there's like a sharing, a type of sharing that goes on, but I think you can't formalize it. Yeah, we should look into that. Yeah, it, it's just so odd because, I mean, this is stuff I do all the time. But the funny thing is, is, invariably, like the circle that I trade amongst, we also end up eating at the same dinner table. With you a lot it, of those, you eat trainings. it together. You eat it <laughs> yeah. together, anyways. Yeah, like, yeah. I'll give them the purge, and then we'll eat the purge together. Right. But if there's no money exchange, is it is it still illegal? You can't actually. Yeah, you can't go. You know, someone just recently sent me. I feel like it's probably a. I feel like it's probably a thing put on a sting operation. But someone just recently sent me a Craigslist ad where some guys like, "Hey, we only eat wild game. I'm willing to pay." Four fifty a pound for deer elk. If there's any hunters out there that would like to sell their game meat, it could it could be legit or it could be a sting. But someone sent me a screen grab of the the, the ad. But that's a purchase. But I've yeah. been solicited that way. But it is a, it's like you can't you, you can't engage in bartering, which I imagine the definition the, the definition has to be some sort of formal arrangement. I, I I got a buddy one time that was coming back from shrimping. And there was a guy, it was like a, it was a crowded pier. He's coming back from shrimping. And there was a guy that was coming back from Lincoln. And my buddy said, so he doesn't know this guy. My buddy says, hey, man, I'll trade you some shrimp for one of those Lincoln flays. And there happened to be an undercover game warden on the pier. Didn't find him, but says, you most definitely will not. Oh, I find that hard to believe that that's that's it's a, that's a formal. It's yeah. like a sale. He's like making a sale, but it's, with no money exchanged. How is how is it considered goods and a services? Sale? Yeah, yeah. You're like doing a thing, but me saying to my bro, uh, "Oh, hey, I froze you up a thing of perch," and he's like, "Oh, sweet." You know, funny you mention that because I froze you up some kings. Like I'm not like my giving him the perch isn't dependent on him giving me the thing. And we had, we're not a formal relation. It's just like an understanding that you like are generous and share. Yeah. That's, that seems blurred. So, so if I came well, down with, with a flay of lingcod and said, Steve, let's eat this lingcod. And on my way out, you said, Oh, here's an extra neck roast. Take that with you. There's no problem with that. It's you giving me something, me giving you something. Yeah. But it's different than a dude showing up on a pier and saying to a guy, he doesn't know. Yeah. I will make a formal trade with you. Because if the guy says, if the guy says, hey, you know, I'll take some shrimp, but I don't want to give you my lingcod filet, then I guess he just gave the guy some shrimp. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's like it's it's like I think it's a slippery slope because yeah. it's like okay, yeah. So we allowed the lingcod shrimp trade, you know. Well, the next time maybe he doesn't have any lingcod, so he's like, well, I'll just give you twenty bucks, or you, yeah. can, you can come by my oil shop and I'll you know change your oil, or you know, and all of a sudden you get to a place where you're basically selling the wildlife. Now, friends of mine in Alaska who are subsistence, who live in subsistence areas, they're allowed to barter. Hmm. Yeah, that they can barter in a subsistence area. You can use fish. You can use wild caught subsistence caught fish to do formal bartering. Do you know about if you can do it with big game? Yeah, I don't know if they're allowed to do it. I don't know if they're allowed to do it with big game. And that that fully extends to like the goods and services realm. Yeah, you can use it as currency. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Service my boat motor. And I'll give you. A, you know, I haven't whatever. read. Uh, I haven't. I haven't like gone and read. I, I should clarify that this is coming from someone who is deeply familiar with the system. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and that was his explanation to me. But I don't want to stand here and, and say that I've like thoroughly read it and explored the whole thing. I'm just kind of conveying like what he explained yeah. to me about it. I want to <clears throat> clarify too that it's. Um, Knowing that squid has no value, it's not going to. It doesn't. It has a great value. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, uh, like that you can just go and buy it, you know, for a cheap price at a store. It's not going to change my enthusiasm when I make it and serve it to other people and share it. All right, let's I'll, do this. I'll be calamari, very, ex- very excited. Calamari menu. I want to find out. That'd be a good little project for you, Yanni, as I move things along. What does it cost to buy calamari? In a restaurant, a calamari appetizer. Eight to 12 bucks. Oh. There you go. And it only takes... A calamari appetizer in a restaurant is two squid. Probably. Two or three squid. Three would be... A, and again, depending on the size of squid, but three, I feel like, would be a heaping bowl. So last night we had 40 appetizers worth of squid. So I, I can't even begin to do that level of math. We but. were we were ripping <laughs> beaks. What do you think the cost is? I'm about for, ready to move. I just as a warning, like I give my kids five minute warnings when it's time to like leave the <laughs> playground. I'm about ready to move on. I want but to I just, well, no, go ahead, go ahead. Five minute warning. <laughs> I'm just about ready to move so on. Five hundred bucks worth of calamari plates. All right, so there you go. Cal, go ahead. Andrew, what would you say? Like your standard like breaded fried calamari appetizer would would cost to produce from the restaurant side or like your you know simmered sauteed with some peppers calamari appetizer well really yeah i mean it's really low cost because you think about just the appetizer where you're getting the breaded fried and a little bit of sauce on the side i mean there's nothing to it but the squid a couple cents worth of flour or cornmeal or whatever crust they're going to put on it and, you know, a tablespoon of mayonnaise, and that's, you're talking, you know. It's good markup. Yeah, real good markup. Uh, you're, you're, uh, can we plug your catering place? Uh, sure, sure. Well, you could, yeah, you could plug anything you want. Island Time. On Island Time Catering. On Island Time Catering. Which does a disservice because you're the most punctual, fast, uh, yeah, efficient person yeah. I know. It is, it is. A little, but it's spelled tricky. T-H-Y-M-E. Yeah. A delicious fun. <laughs> a delicious fun. So any listeners out there, and what's your range? What's your zone? Uh, you know, mostly San Juan Island, but 
I also do have a DBA as as my own chef Andy, which I do a lot of more small detailed yeah mobile stuff. Yeah. Obviously, I've done some traveling with you and done some other events in and around. So we'll come back around and replug you later. Yeah. Um. All right. What else? Oh, another thing I wanted to get to before the main thing we want to get to. We're kind of already on subject. We're actually on subject. Definitely. But go into. Oh, talk about something for a minute, Yanni. Oh boy. <laughs> oh, how about the? Uh... Can I talk about the tour demand tool? That's what I'm trying to talk oh, about. Oh, that's right you're now. trying to talk about. Yeah, hit it. Um, uh, now, we interrupt this for an announcement from Yanni. We are going to do a. Do we know how many stops? Roughly 10, maybe? Yeah, man. Yeah, around, not somewhere eight, the 8 to 10 range. 8 to 10 live for, for podcast now, events um, in the next year. Is that safe to say? Yeah. Um. All across the United States, but we don't know where to go. Steve and I had a list going of places we thought we should go, and then we thought, well, it'd probably be better to ask people. To impose some rationale into it. Mm-hmm. On it. Instead of just being like, yeah, it seems like a place where a lot of dudes <clears throat> live. Yeah, and because we'd fight about it. I just kept saying, we got to go to Pennsylvania. They got millions of hunters. Steve's like, nah, nobody's going to come to Pennsylvania. So... <laughs> Now, if you're in Pennsylvania and you're like, bullshit, we could fill, a, we could fill a, a theater full of people. You can go to, Steve, you got it up? No, I'm having connectivity issues. Mm. We're going to have a, uh, it's called the, a tour demand tool. Yes. And we're going to embed it across uh, all of our social channels, platforms. You'll be able to find it there. And basically go on there and you're just going to have to type in like, I don't even know if it requires your name, but basically your zip code. Zip code and email. Zip code and email. And um, then we'll open up a dialogue with you. Yeah. And you no, want, you, just, you just request your zip code. <laughs> and you want to get all your buddies to do it too if they live in and around your area because whoever gets basically the most votes, that's where we're going to end up. Yeah, this is not like screwing around. This is like how we're actually figuring out where to go. Yeah. And it looks cool, too. It's a really easy little thing. Yeah. By saying you want us there, you're basically saying, yeah, I'd buy a ticket to go to the event. What size theaters are you guys looking at? A few hundred folks. Mm. We, did one, we did one in Bozeman. How many seats were in Bozeman? 440, I believe. Yeah. That sold out a couple weeks before it happened. Mm. So you folks got to get on this if you're going to do it. When it happens, you got to strike fast. Or as Yanni says, you got to. Uh, be on the dance. What, what was the thing you were talking about yesterday? Being on the <laughs> opportunity dances with those on the dance floor. Yeah, that's right. Okay, now to get back on subject, you know what my brother Matt and Pooter, you've been hanging out with Matt for twenty years. Yeah. You know what Matt's my brother Matt's favorite uh, recipe is right now. His favorite wild game recipe. <laughs> I need to like set the stage a little bit about Matt. <laughs> this show is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Now we all carry around different stressors big ones little ones when you keep these things bottled up it can start to affect you in a very negative way well therapy is a great space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down like figure it out that means figure it out with someone who's impartial who's able to sit down and hear what you have to say and think it through with you if you're thinking of starting therapy give better help a try it's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire 
to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, there's no there's no such thing. It's like you're not so tough. You're not so tough that it doesn't do you some good to talk to somebody now and then about what's on your mind, okay? Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash meat eater today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use fully functional GPS when you're out of service. And as we all know, that being out of service is usually where the best places start. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Just download the map ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. I've been using OnX for many years. I use it, I'm not joking, on a daily basis. There is zero hunting I do without OnX. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. No, I won't. I'll just let this speak for itself. Matt, when he butchers a deer, do you know about this? His new thing he likes to eat? Uh, no. Okay. When Matt butchers a deer, he... Saves all the scrap, so like the tallow, mm-hmm. tendon, silver skin, and kind of throws a rough mince on it and saves it in a little, like, when you open his cupboards, he saves, like, every butter tub or cream cheese container that guy has ever generated. Coffee. Anything he has. He's just like, he's got a large area of his kitchen that's dedicated to just him where he throws any sort of little tub. I think he actually, he probably grocery shops based on those the tub containers. Size. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I'm kind of out of this. I, could use a tub like I don't that. need any butter this week. Well, I'll get some margarine because it's got comes in that. Because that's tub. the kind of tub I like. When we when I was over there, we came back from that turkey hunt, and somebody had snuck by and put three garbage bags full of Folgers uh, containers <laughs> in his kitchen. He loves containers yeah. and tubs. So 
One of the things he does with his containers and tubs is he freezes scrap, deer scrap, because he like his dog likes to eat it. So when he goes to feed his dog, he'll take one of these little tubs, frozen, just a scrap in it, and just add a little water to it and put it in his microwave for a bunch of minutes. Oh, but, but did you say what originally those tubs were for? Butter and coffee and cream cheese. No, 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 no. Why he was making them. Yeah, for his dog. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I wasn't paying attention. Oh, you're, yeah, you're doing notes. something else. So, because then he'll microwave it, like, to oblivion, or until it turns into, like, it's something that would have an industrial application if you needed something like like an organic type of rubber. Yeah. Right? And he gives it to his dog, Shifty, on its food. Well, I don't know how I have, but but he one day just must have been hungry or whatever, and now... <laughs> That's what he likes to have, and that's how he likes to fix it. Ooh. So his deer, he's now like, the thing he likes to eat is the tallow, tendon, and silver skin and blood clots <laughs> microwaved in little tubs that he then likes he to He must just, salt it, at least. I, I think he does put salt on it, yeah, and that's, th- his, that's his hot tip. Yeah, I think the microwaving in the tub is really what pulls that dish together. <laughs> That's his hot tip. Infusible plastic Ooh, flavor. Yeah. yeah. My latest hot tip. Here's my cooking hot tip. And this is hard to replicate. But I recently had a mule deer buck tenderloin that I seared in a pan and then... So just brown it on all sides, rubbed it with salt and pepper, seared it in a pan, so I browned it on all sides and stuck it in a 400-degree oven for not long enough so that when I pulled it out, like, I don't have any reason to think this, but my ki- I feed my kids a lot of, like, really extremely rare meat, mm-hmm. which I used to worry that something bad would happen to them, but if they've been alive long enough now or something bad was going to happen to them, it would have happened to them by now. But anyways, I still sometimes will cut into a piece of meat and I'll be like, my God, that is raw. You know? Can I interrupt? But then they eat it and they're fine. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to ask, like, from, from a professional chef's perspective, is there anything, like, at what point can something like that get dangerous? Like raw meat? Because I think that's probably in a lot of people's Well, I think mind. you guys have the most experience with that as far as the bear. I mean, you know. Yeah, but I don't, know, but my, I don't my worry, worry. Go, yeah, with venison. No, a large game animal, you could eat it raw. You know what I mean? But yeah. that's what, my concern is that parasites. Yeah. My concern is just that there's, that it's like, could be potentially be hard for their system. Right. A two-year-old? Yeah. But you got to work and experiment, you know? But it doesn't phase them. Because I think because they've just been eating it the whole time. I remember my brother had this girlfriend who's vegetarian for a long time. And then one day we shot a deer and she ate a whole bunch of rare deer meat and was puking her brains out mm-hmm. because it's just like, Shocked her system. Shocked her system. So that's my concern more than other things. Yeah. But anyways, then I wrapped this thing up, what was left of it, wrapped it up saran wrap, and left it in my fridge for like a week. Then there's a sandwich shop called Mean Sandwich, and they have a habanero sauce. And somehow, one of, I don't really know how, I haven't like checked with everyone in my family yet to understand how this happened. But one of their containers of habanero sauce ended up in my fridge. It's like a thinking man's Frank's Red Hot. Buttery. Mm-hmm. So I took my raw deer meat, my mostly raw, week-old deer meat back out 
cut it in slices, melted a bunch of butter in a pan, recooked it all over again in that butter, dredged it in that habanero sauce that I found, and that was the best thing I've ever eaten in my entire life. Hard to replicate. It's a lot of steps. Yeah. And it involves you going to mean sandwich. <laughs> and time. I mean, if you're going to And it allows it, you to let, let it age to have meat. a thing kind of cooked in your fridge under plastic wrap for seven days. The best thing I ever ate. Wow. That's my hot tip. So you got a hot tip from Matt, really which is spicy. microwave. No, I'm not. Like I said, it's a thinking man's habanero sauce, though. Spicy. Too spicy for my kids. My two-year-old insisted that I give him some, and he declared it spicy. <laughs> <laughs> That's my hot tip. Poot, what's your, like hot, it. What's your hot tip? Hot tip. Poot's tips. Well, I, I should clarify that Andy, uh, while it's not his name, he has never once introduced himself as such as widely known as Poot. <laughs> so if I say Pooter, that's who I'm talking about, <laughs> is Andrew. I like that style, though, when you take that, uh, that back strap or tenderloin like that and sear it on the outside and have that rare bit in the middle, but then pan sear that later. Because is that a thing? I thought I invented that the other night. No, but it just it reminds <laughs> me of like of taking like a you know like a roast beef, like a raw or no medium rare roast beef, but then turning that into like a steak sandwich. You know what I mean? Oh like, yeah, hit that yeah. hot in a pan with the onions and peppers, and the flavor that then comes out of that. I think is I I love that. Yeah. I'm a sandwich guy though. You um, like you oh, like making sandwiches? Love sandwiches. you familiar with mean sandwiches? Nope. Where's that at? Over Ballard. Yeah. I'll check it out. Yeah. Good sauce. Hmm. Give me another hot tip, Poot. That one didn't count. Hot tip? Well, I we were kind of talking about earlier, um, just in the, in the, the way of uh, is bringing it back a little bit, but the way that things are handled and processed along the way, you know what I mean? I Over the years of hanging out with you guys and then seeing the way that things have evolved especially up at the shack you think about how kind of crude it was at the beginning things were just kind of getting right off the flay table wrapped in a saran wrap and whacked in the freezer and to see that evolution of um the the introduction of more expensive stuff correct (laughs) and i think just a general care you know like your brother danny's just meticulous on his fillets you know and you can always tell the difference but i think that translates down the line so well from the way that it's handled, A, when it comes like right out of the water or obviously an animal that you put down on the ground. And every step that's taken, if, if there's care that goes into every little step, I think the end result is leaps and abounds above adds up. everything. Um, yeah, because like a wrong move dealing with fish, like a couple wrong moves can really put you in a bad spot. Yeah, yeah. And when you pull that out of the freezer and it, you have a, a, a piece of meat that's just absolutely pristine, it's just like, I don't know, to me, it's like, it's, it's like Christmas, you know, to be able to pull that out and not be like, ooh, well, we got to cut this away. We got to, you know, it, it elevates everything along the way, I think. We were down, in, we were down fishing blue catfish in Kentucky. We went to this guy's house. And, and, I, and until we started hanging out, we went down and spent a bunch of time in Kentucky uh, jogging, limb lining. What else? Trot lining. Yeah, those three. Jogging, limb lining, and trot lining for channels, flats, and blues. Mm. Turtles. And, and turtles. 
And I'd always liked to fish catfish, but I never understood. And I knew that there was catfish that you put it in your mouth, and it was like, oh, my God, is that bad? And there was catfish you put in your mouth. It's like, wow, that's great. I never realized that the, that what you're, the difference between those two things is fat. Mm-hmm. That catfish fat tastes horrible. And we went down with a guy who catches, I want to say probably thousands of pounds of catfish a year. Oh, yeah. Because we had easy. Because we had, in the hundreds, maybe, we had 20-some catfish that day. Not hundreds. We had a lot of catfish. Maybe not 100 pounds of fillets. No, no, but like live weight. You know, I think we had in the 70s for live weight. Bunch of guys fishing. Either way, the guy cleans a lot of catfish. And to watch this guy, uh, he just fishes blue catfish with jugs. But to watch this guy go through his cleaning process and how meticulous and fastidious and like this is the way you do it you don't do it that way and his setup and how carefully he defats those flays and then he'd take all that pieced up meat and put it in a wheelbarrow with a hose in it and would just stare at it and stare at it and stare at it watching for any little wisps of oil that would be floating on the surface and what he would go through to get it where he's like, now that's ready to eat. And that's the difference between good catfish and bad catfish. Yeah. There's well, a guy like that. I think you should follow that up with that we sort of had a, uh, you know, an impromptu, you know, like a check on that the other day when we were cooking catfish. Oh, yeah. It's that little strip of dark on the belly, right? That's it's that and all there's that. orange fat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the, there's the bloodline, which they're real careful about getting rid of. And then there's fat. And the other day, we had some catfish, a huge catfish. We're just like trying to test the catfish recipe and had a big piece of catfish. And I didn't defat it. I kind of like half-assed defatted it. And ugh, that mud. And it was store-bought. Yeah. And I think that kind of tripped us up because we just figured, ah, store-bought. It's been well taken care of. You know, not so much. We kind of took that same approach when <clears throat> we were fishing those shovel nose um, sturgeon up, yeah. up at the Yellowstone, and they kind of have that same. And we we're kind of watching videos, and they said it's really important that you make sure you clean it all the way down to the white meat. And so we were kind of, you know, taking our time removing, and we did a little tester, and it, you could taste the difference. Oh yeah, and I found it too. Even like a, on there's certain species, salmon. It's weird because salmon. Why are king salmon so popular? Yeah. Because of the fat. Because the fat's so great on them. Yeah. You know, it was, well, I mean, it's a lot of, like, I why is domestic pork fat real tasty, but deer fat is not? Mm. So, king salmon, people like, like them because they're fatty. When we've butchered sharks, like lemon sharks, you got to get all that fat off. Hmm. Or else it tastes nasty. So, real careful is what you're saying. Yeah. And then your brother Matt took all those little pieces, put them in, put them in a tub, put them in a microwave, in a cre- yeah, <laughs> microwave those in a cream cheese tub for five minutes, <laughs> and turns them back into gold. Yanni, what's your uh, what's your hot tip? Ooh, um, I wasn't ready for this. Really? Um, hot tip, Cal, you got one? Come back to me. Um, I got I got one. I, I real consistently get complimented on. Uh, on anything involving the morel mushroom is I like to 
so I dry all my mushrooms. Um, and then you have to reconstitute them to cook with them. And I guess you don't have to, but I do. And so they sit in a bowl of water for, you know, 24 hours in the fridge. And then I'll pull those mushrooms out, um, snip them in half with kitchen shears, give them a rinse again in the same water, let that calm down, pull those mushrooms out and kind of give them a light little squeeze to drain that water back in there. And then I'll um, strain the water, the liquid, the reconstituted, the liquid that I use to reconstitute the mushrooms. Yep. And then I just use that as mushroom stock for whatever sauce or the roast that I'm cooking with the mushrooms. And, I, man, it, it makes a difference. Are you familiar, though, with the school of thought that you should never, ever wash yes. a wild mushroom? But those people don't deal with mushrooms out of burns. Well, morels just with the gills on the outside. They are, and they're hollow on the inside, so they're yeah. like natural bug homes, worm homes. Yeah, and, I'd always read that yeah. about how you shouldn't rinse them. And you see it in all kinds of places, like use a gentle brush. That might be true if you're, depending on where, if you're like picking morels in some kind of like real grassy river bottom area where it's the nice mat of grass, and he's like living there in a dust-free environment. And you found him that day and there was like a nice dew on the grass or something. Yeah. I've spent more time Some eating morels that I didn't wash because you're not supposed to wash them and having a miserable time wondering about like what's going to happen to my teeth. Yeah. From the grit that I'm eating. Because even if you, I, and I'm, especially when I'm cooking for other folks, I'm real gentle with them because I want them, want them to be pretty. Um it's impossible to clean those things. Yeah. Like you will never get every stitch of dirt. I soak them. Suckers. I think they they're hardy enough. You know, they're not like morels. Yeah, to get not, the grit. Not like a shaggy man. It's just going to dissolve. It's a, it's it's hardy enough to to hold up to to. Well, I usually soak them for a while fresh, just to get just, them clean, just to rinse them. Yeah. My bro one time was picking them. He was out trying to pick them for sale. He had a commercial permit in a big burn. You know, they'll mm-hmm. open up like commercial harvesting. Just just to clarify, so. Just for listeners, uh, mushrooms have like like a like a, a mycorrhizal. Am I saying the word right? Mycorrhiza. There's a there's an underground the, the mycelium or something like that. Mycelium. The mycelium. A, a mushroom has an underground structure. So when you see a mushroom pop up, this isn't a good perfect analogy, but just think about it like this: when, when a mushroom pops up, you're seeing the apple of an apple tree. But in the mushroom's case, it's not a, you know, it's not the same thing as a plant, but it's fungi. But what you're seeing is the macro fructation, the fruiting body of a very large underground network of mycelia. I think it's yeah, mycelium. Mycelium, yeah. A big structure that's like imagine as this tree-like underground structure that puts off a fruit. Um, when we talk about morels after forest fires, there's something that happens that's not well understood. That the underground structure of the morel is is there. It's like omnipresent. It's just down there. And something about the action of the fire. It might be that it stresses that whole system out and it's like, holy hell, we got to get out of here. Yeah. and it cr- And they will all of a sudden crank out. You could have scorched earth. Yes moon dust and 
the following, well, it could happen different times. Generally, if it burns one summer, so it burns in August, the following April, May, June, depending on elevation, latitude, and other factors, all of a sudden, in the right place, it's just a bonanza where, whap, it is carpeted in morels. That is the difference between mushroom hunting and mushroom harvesting. Yeah. And guys that commercially harvest morels will often, that, that's where commercially harvested morels are coming out of, oftentimes, is out of big burns, where you can go and pick like 100 pounds of morels. Now, my bro one time picked a bunch, fixing to sell, and he'd pick them after a rain. And his entire pick was rejected for how gritty. Too much ash. Wow. Can't get them clean. Hmm. So he then had his tub supply got maxed because he then had <laughs> like everything possible. He was like drying morels nonstop, and then we ate gritty mushrooms for. And, and I've done like a, a pretty damned abusive cleaning process on these before, and and I think the the right way to do it lies somewhere in the middle. Like it, it's amazing how much that mushroom gets beaten up, and when you're finally draining your wash tub, bucket, tub, whatever, how much mushroom is on the bottom there and residue down there with all the ash. And, and every third Morelli open up has a, a roly poly in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, they're buggy, they're dirty, but. Man, they're delicious. Yeah. <laughs> buggy. Hey, Yanni, will you, uh, will you type up? I just want to get people square. Type up mycelium and mycorrhiza. Mycelium being M-Y-C-E-L-I-U-M. Mycorrhiza being M-Y-C-H. You'll figure it out. Now, I, I've been told that there is hardly a surface out there that doesn't have a morel spore on it. I've seen them come up in some crazy places. Yeah. Did you see those studies they've done where they've gone in, like they go into a school where you have like a building with tons of small rooms and multi-floors on it and they'll go in with a you, know, you go in with a mushroom and walk down the hall and then wait some period of time and then go in and test the air and the, the spores yeah no the spore uh, yeah like a mushroom hmm. spore there's a thing that, like a lot of mushroom hunters be like oh you can only carry your mushrooms in a basket not a bag because you need to make sure the spores are getting out and being distributed yeah that that but people say the spores are omnipresent. Yeah, they're everywhere. And it's multiple, multiple, multiple generations that are, um, the way I've been told now is, you know, they are, uh, the mushroom hunters, they are where they are yeah. type deal. They're just waiting for that combination of heat, but not too much heat, moisture, but not too much moisture, disturbance, but not too much disturbance to create that little micro climate that they like yeah when, yeah. You're, when you're hunting you're going to your spots like yeah. i've been hunting they just put for, off all the time that i know I've, over 20 years i know every year there'll be a mushroom in that same spot yeah and over you just gotta be over. there on the right day and it is yeah, yeah you watch the weather you wait for that perfect soil condition and then you go out there and boom there they are and what i've had a couple cool. times where i moved where i moved away from an area and then very ceremoniously passed along my morel mm-hmm. spots yeah. i'm not sure if i do that I, I mean, those are, yeah, there's certain things that I just cannot part with. I'm like, hey, you just hey. want it to be that I'd rather no one picked. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly <laughs> I'd rather right. they rotted into the ground. It is <laughs> so hard to find them sometimes. But one cool experiment 
um, for folks that are into picking mushrooms is if you know you get your mushrooms home you lay them out on a big screen um, and you start that drying process they will and it must be somewhat forcibly discharge those spores on the screen and so um, you know if you have like a dark window screen um, you remove that mushroom and then you look and it leaves a really beautiful spore print. design yeah. of spores on there. And I always thought somebody much more artsy than me could probably make something cool. Well, that's a, di- that's a diagnostic tool for ID and mushrooms. It is, yeah. Is you take a spore print because you look at a mushroom and be like, that's some bitch, a mushroom is brown. But you'll be reading like, you're trying to go like, so is it the, is it the good one that looks like that or the poison one that looks like that? And it'll say, the good one that looks like that will throw a purple spore print. The poison one that looks like that will throw a yellow spore print. And you lay that thing out on a white piece of paper and get a spore print. You look at it like, I don't know how. It's brown, but that's got a yellow. There's a yellow mark on that paper. I've only been poisoned by mushrooms one time. Um, Was it a real deal or was it just Gastrointestinal upset. Okay. So like wild mushrooms have two... A mycologist, which is a, you know, like a, a mycologist is a mushroom biologist. A mycologist might hear this and be like, that's not right. But this is, I can tell you, I can guarantee you that this is kind of right. There's mushroom toxins that are neurotoxins, okay, that mess with your head, like eating shrooms, right? That'd be like a neurotoxin. And then there's mushroom toxins that just like screw you up your digestive tract, right? So that they mess your brain up or they mess your gut up. I got messed up by the gut kind, and it was eating queen bleats while caribou hunting. And I'd eaten a million queen bleats in the lower 48. Not a million, but quite a handful. And then we were eating them up there. And then I later learned from a mycologist who was saying, you know, it's a thing that a lot of people who can eat queen bleats wind up being intolerant of the queen bleats on the Arctic Slope. Hmm. Whoa. Some difference about them. There's a mushroom that is highly toxic unless a caribou or reindeer eats it. Then you can drink that reindeer's piss and trip. <laughs> Let's take it into the extreme. That's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah it's one of the, it's like, uh, it's like the fly Garrick or one of the related to that. It's like when you're watching a cartoon and there's a mushroom, it's a red mushroom with white spots on it that's like present in all car. It's like, the classic poison mushroom mushroom, which grow right near my house. There's, there's some of those. Most falls, there's some of those about 150 yards from here. A white mushroom, a red mushroom with white spots out like in the Smurfs stuff, that's the mushroom. Yeah, but if a, a reindeer eats it and you drink his piss, you'll trip. Not that I've done it, but it's a, it's a thing that Siberian herders do. It's... Tripping, Wild group tripping of guys. In the bo- yeah, tripping in the boreal forest. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you find out, Yanni? Have you done your research? Yeah. The, you just want the definition of the two? Yeah, because I, 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 so I... Mycelium is the vegetative part of a fungus or fungus-like bacterial colony. Okay. Consisting of a mass of branching thread-like hyphae. That's who's living under the ground. Yeah. Mycorrhizal, is that, is that a term for the relationship? Yes symbiotic association between a fungus and the roots of a vascular host plant yeah because like morels 
They have that's right. Now it's come back to me. Morels have a mycorrhizal relationship with, say, tulip popper, poplars in Virginia, elm trees near where I used to live, cottonwoods, aspens. Must be ponderosa pines. Apple, I, yeah. I found some underneath some ponderosa. Apple orchards spring. in some places. And you might have none of these things grow in your yard and haul in some wood chips. And then all of a sudden realize you had some morels pop out of your wood chips. Mm-hmm. I've seen that happen. Yeah. When I was a tree surgeon. Where, Interesting. Because, yeah. yeah, people do that now, right? Like they bring in half rotten logs in special locations. Doug Duran does that. Yeah. Now, um, Not for morels, but he does it a quality difference and this is something we've tested out thoroughly between what we refer to as natural morels which are non fire producing morels okay yeah and your fire morels now your fire morels typically um overabundance bonanza abundance uh the year after the fire and then they decline rapidly sometimes from what i've seen fall off the face of the earth they're just not the the next year the next year now you have your annual spots where uh if the conditions are right they'll produce every single year the big giant yellows morcella esculenta even if they're small or blonde or black the the wall of the mushroom seems to just be meteor gotcha and man those things there's a uh that's something I've noticed but never thought about. You're right. I never like correlated it to location, but some morels just have a wall on them. I, I got one about the size of a uh, perfect size of a good high walled saute pan. And uh, one mushroom. One mushroom. Wow. And uh, did. A, How big is a saute pan? This was uh, probably a 14. Holy shit. Yeah. You ever Inch. see the back of Mushrooms Demystified? The morels the dudes holding on the back of that book? Yeah. No. Head, head size morels, man. Oh. So, uh, but I smoked this thing with the uh, smoked, uh, smoked octopus, elk Italian sausage, spicy, and like a nice, you know, mirepoix, probably carrots and some celery and stuff. And, and, baked that baby for a little while and topped her off some mushroom sauce or some uh, tomato sauce and tough to beat, man. But cutting through that thing, the point here is it is a steak. Yeah. Yeah, you're like, woo! (laughs) You know, it fights back against the knife. It's great. Now, Cal, talk us through your your tongue preparation. Um, Are you guys going to cover this in the new cookbook? Yeah, we talk about tongues in there. Good. Good. Every, but I know you're like a big tongue man. Every day. Is that a recipe that you share? Yeah, it is. Oh, it is. Maybe it, you could share it with me and then I can share it with the rest of the world. Yeah. Why can't he just tell us right now how he likes to cook game tongues? Well, yeah, he can do that as well, but it's hard to then replicate that. People are dying to know. I get questions every single day. Hey, got a tongue. You guys talk me into taking a tongue. You guys, now what, what do I do? do? Now do I do this damn thing? Yeah, exactly. So uh, the quick version is, is I prefer a pressure cooker. I'll pile a bunch of tongues in there, let it roll on high for like 20 minutes. Can you back up? Yeah. Uh, at what point do you think a tongue is worth messing with? I take them all. Even out of like a white tail. Little goat. tiny white tails, that mountain goat this year. All right. Take them all. Any old tongue. Yeah. 
I'm, I may not. I'm, I know I am not as picky as some folks. And you but. speed cut it, where you open up the bottom of the jaw. Yep. Pull it out. Yeah, it's almost out of like uh, Scarface, right? Yeah, it almost wants to come out. Yeah, so you you cut along the inside uh, line of the jaw, uh, and then you can kind of reach up there and hook it, and then you're cutting at the back of the trachea and. And the rest is pretty explanatory. It's disturbing how fast you can get a tongue out. It is. You like to think that your tongue's in there better than it is. Yes. Now, if your critter has frozen, like if you chucked her in the back of the truck and it froze overnight, then you have to be more careful because there's a good chance you're going to cut through a portion of your tongue and then you're, you got to kind of cook it right away because the nice thing is they're all self-contained. So um, the peeling part is... You wash it. Uh, you wash it. Pressure... I like the pressure cooker, but you can just boil it also. Just flat ass, like, that's it. You're not brining it ahead of time. You're just Not not for the way I like to cook it. No, please. That's, yeah. all, that's what I'm trying to find um, out. And then uh, I'll take it just like a pepper and throw it in the freezer, uh, like paper bag, throw it in the freezer, and then you start working on your sauce, uh, which chopped up a bunch of... Back up. Just like a pepper. I got that part. You're not, for, for my likings, you're not spending enough time on what it is you're doing by pressure cooking and boiling it. Okay. And or boiling it. So basically, you, your tongue has, um, and that's true, your tongue, everybody's tongue, has this rind on the outside, a skin. Yeah. Um, the meat on the inside is nice and fatty, uh, which is probably why I like it so much. And by um, boiling it, um, you are getting... Uh, that skin to kind of release, I, I I would think, and then to get it where it slips off. Yeah, and then if you chuck that thing in the freezer, um, for reasons unknown to me, it separates really easy, like finger peel with zero meat loss. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you don't want that. But the tu- the tip. Tip, it's difficult. The tip is difficult, and it can be triaged, and that's where, like, your small white tail tongues, um, the kind of the chucking it in the freezer for twenty minutes is kind of critical because you get too much meat loss if it sticks to that. Yeah, yeah. If you line. have to like use a knife to shave it, that's what I've right. found. Not so, have like, if left. I'll simmer it for three to four hours, depending on how big the tongue is, and I just keep checking by jabbing a fork into the base. Yeah. And then I throw mine in an ice water bath. Yeah. Same result? You know, it just it varies so much. It does. Like, I was with a buddy of mine, a, a chef. You remember that? Have you met uh, Matt Weingarten, mm-hmm. that chef? I was watching him do nine veal tongues one time. And the outer skin on a veal tongue is not well adhered to the tongue like it is on a game animal. Because he just, like, simmer them for two hours, throw them in an ice water bath, and it was like taking someone's shoe off. Yeah. The skin was just like, whoop, gone. Ah. I'm like, dude, that ain't anything like what I've experienced because I'll boil them for three to four hours and then I'll be able to get the base of the tongue slipped off, but then I'm in there with a paring knife working away on the tip. Yeah. Because just you're getting that outer skin layer off. And and maybe in subconsciously, that's why I would kind of wait till Thanksgiving or Christmas when I've... Because if I help pack some somebody's critter out of the woods for them... Um, you know, I'd typically have an abundance of meat, but everybody's like, hey, do you want a quarter off this thing? I'm like, yeah, just give me the tongue. 
Yeah. Right? It's got to where people fight over the tongues. I know. I was hunting with Remy Warren and got an elk. He got an elk. And I was like, you know, and it was the, he was like, go ahead and grab what you want off the elk. And I, like, grabbed myself up and I grabbed the tongue. He's like, oh, no, not that. <laughs> I don't care. He's like, I don't care about the tenderloins and back straps. Don't take the tongue. <laughs> Man, it's, it's the real deal. So um, then while this meat, your tongues are in the freezer, I uh, work on the sauce, uh, which my buddy Jim Chardelli, this is mom's uh, Creole sauce is what he calls it. Um, but it's... Uh, Chopped green olives, pimentos, garlic, red wine, black pepper, mm. uh, and crushed canned tomatoes. So, oh, well, you. should I just get tomatoes? No, get canned tomatoes. Yeah, th- that that school of thought bugs me. When people are like down on you for using, it's just different. Yeah, it's just like it's just different. It's helpful sometimes. Yeah, but I, I don't know if is it. It's super helpful, but is it? Like a uh, coming out of the depression thing, I, I, I don't know. Like, no, just use canned tomatoes. Pooter, are you prejudiced against canned tomatoes? No, I use them all the time. You do, yeah. I mean, there's an application for them. I mean, yeah, they're they're processed to the point where you want to put them into a sauce. You know, yeah. So uh, get this sauce kind of simmering. Uh, you know, with an, enough liquid and and uh, I, I also use my uh reconstituted morels and the the juice accompanying that uh and then i'll pull the tongues out i'll peel the tongues uh chop the tongues into you know about you know your uh thumbnail size pieces maybe a little bit bigger and just let that simmer uh and then i'll fry polenta I'll just get the you know the tubes of polenta that you see at the store yep cut them into rounds and give them a nice little fry and then uh and crock pot's perfect for this too um but you know take you know sauce and a couple of chunks and make sure there's morel in there and stack it up all nice on that polenta and a little bit of parsley on top and it's fantastic love it that's the tongue. Sounds good. I, I mean, it's my, it is a meal I look forward to every year. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. 
I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use fully functional GPS when you're out of service. And as we all know, that being out of service is usually where the best places start. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Just download the map ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. I've been using OnX for many years. I use it, I'm not joking, on a daily basis. There is zero hunting I do without OnX. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. And, and it's simple. I mean, it's not, it's, not, it's not kitchen magic, right? What I've been doing, like, I tend to smoke them. There's a lot of quizzical, kind of real questioning, raised eyebrows for our listeners here, really staring me down. No, <laughs> not at all. What's I, I like this. this. <laughs> I just didn't know that's what you're doing with the tongues. I like it. Okay. Yeah, we've been li- hearing about it for years, about your fancy uh, tongue dish, but I don't know if you'd ever explained it to us. Yeah. I'd put it more on like the peasant side of things, right? Peasant yeah. dish, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like traditionally. But, you know, in the old days, it was they were so valuable that, you it would warrant people to go out and hunt buffalo just for the tongues. She could get a couple bucks for the tongue. And they, you could get a dollar or two for the tongue, which was huge money them? back then. They were pickling them, right? They'd or pickle them, them, pack them in barrels of salt, and ship them east just packed in salt, salt packed. And then was it like a bar food or? Yeah, pickled tongue and smoked tongue. Okay. Yeah, and they would, they would pack up. They would pack them in salt barrels. One time there was a there was a case where there's a. In the historical account, there's a case where a group of Sioux hunters near the junction of the, I think they were near the junction where the Yellowstone flows into the Missouri, which I think it was Fort Union sits there, where the Yellowstone River hits the Missouri in North Dakota. I think that's Fort Union. 
and a group of Sioux hunters killed 5,000 buffalo near the fort and just sold the tongues out of them because it was valuable. Oh. Yeah. There's a lot of cases like that. I, you know, I do have to say, like, my eastern Montana family, um, they weren't they – were, I, I made uh, this tongue as an appetizer for the whole, you know, whole clan – uh, last Christmas, and the kind of the older generation was pretty skeptical because every single person there was like ranch family. Once they made it sound like once a week, it was just kind of on the rotation. There, there would be a beef tongue that had been uh, brined into pastrami, and it was beef tongue sandwiches once a week, and they were not super jacked to be eating tongue. But that's, did, that's what like I mean. I basically make a pastrami with the tongues. And, I mean, that's got to be good. Right? I, love I love it. I love it. But that's what I stole from Matt Weingart. I think what's surprising about it is just the texture. When it's handled right, how tender it actually oh. is. Oh. It yeah. just falls apart. You know? Yeah. And when you cut it, it's got like a weird uh, mosaic of like white and red mm-hmm. and cool pattern. Yeah, a couple couple years back when you did, uh, we did Thanksgiving at your place and we had maybe three or four tongues that I think you had brined and smoked. Yep. And they were just phenomenal, really good. I brine them while I like cure them yeah. with a dry brine, and I vac seal them in a bag with the dry brine. Do you cure them with the sheath on? Yep. Take the whole damn tongue, scrub it with a scrub brush, have a cure, salt, sugar, and seasonings, and vac seal it into the, in with the dry cure, and throw it in my fridge for a week or two. Mm-hmm. And just flip it now and then in the vac sealed bag because the liquid settles and you flip it and the liquid settles. Then I smoke it for a long time. Then I braise it to peel the skin. Hmm. And then that liquid that you braise it in winds up being amazing. Yeah. It's like a smoked stock. Yeah. That, then I slip the There's tin. a lot of fat in there. Oh, it's yeah. Amazing. A lot of fat in there. Yeah. yeah. That uh, moose tongue that uh, uh, we got up in BC. I stole your moose tongue from from that one on the river trip. Uh, that I threw in the pressure cooker, let cool completely, like cold, cold. Uh, peeled it, sliced it super thin, olive oil, salt, pepper, and a moose tongue's a big tongue. That thing disappeared. About six people took that thing down. <laughs> yeah, it's three pound tongue. Yeah, and it was. I mean, just phenomenal. But it was just cold, good olive oil, salt, pepper. It was fantastic. All right, I'm going to walk folks through on how to do deer ribs. So, like, it's very important because people don't understand this. I was one time down in South Carolina, and we took a deer to a deer processor. Or No, we didn't. We just went, we dropped by a deer processor in South Carolina. And this guy, as he's, like, admitting deer into his processing plant, skins them and takes a sawzall and cuts the rib rack right off and throws it out with the feet (laughs) like not even gonna look at it a processor i don't know if there's uh call me a liar no (laughs) no (laughs) i'm adding to your story i just think that i don't know if there's a processor in our country that deals with venison ribs. Really? And I don't even think that, I'm, I'm saying that with just deboning them for the grind pile. 
I mean, I live near one, and I see the mountain of carcasses. Those, they're all ribs intact. Really? And it's mostly elk, you know. Elk ribs. So anyways, t- okay, here's what you should do with your deer ribs. If you don't do this, you're stupid. Take, skin the deer. You, get, you got the deer to skin it, and eventually you got where you got, there's the deer laying there, and he's got his ribs on him. And because you already gutted him, you already split the sternum. So go down along the spine with a saw and cut the ribs free along the spine so that you wind up with a Fred Flintstone rib rack. We'll put up a picture with the show notes. We'll put up a picture of pictures of how to do this, of what I'm talking about. Take that rib rack. And then saw, if you're talking about a general a standard issue whitetail deer, saw that rib rack into three long strips where you're cutting crossbone. Is this making sense? Yep. And you're going to wind up with three strips of what looks like pork ribs from a restaurant. Yeah. And what you did the other day that was slick that I hadn't seen is you rolled the ribs into... Before sawing them. Yeah. Yeah. You could take that whole rib rack and you have the... Mat, you'll, it might not make sense listening to me, but once you're doing it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Depending on how you cut this whole thing, you can take the rib rack and just roll it up like a river rafting table. What do they call those tables? Roll top tables? Roll a table. Roll yeah. time industries. Roll it up like a river rafting table. The good folks and then have your roll of cock. saw it. So you're cutting cross bone. You're going to wind up with three long strips, 10, 11 ribs in pieces that are about six inches long. Five, six inches long, depending on the size of the deer. Then you cut those down into pieces that have three, two or three ribs per piece. So you have two or three ribs that are six inches long, connected by all the meat that was over and under them. Let me back up. If it's a particularly fatty deer, take a boning knife and cut away as much of the tallow as you can. Am I missing anything else, Yanni? No. No. Do all that. Cut them up. Well, unless you want to mention, I guess, what I was thinking about is when you're cutting it off the carcass, you sort of end up with having the, like, where it, there's like, almost like a 90-degree turn of bone at the top end going to the spine. Yeah. It doesn't really have a lot of meat on but it. there's a seam in there. There's a seam, and that's really where you should be cutting. So it's not quite right against the spine. If you're real crafty and good with a knife, you can cut it. There's a joint. There's like a joint in the rib. It doesn't look like it, but it's there. And you can actually cut it with a knife if you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But... Just the sawzall is fine too. Yeah, and then on the bottom edge, you're sort of dealing with where it joins into the sternum. Sternum, and there's a joint there. If you know what you're doing, you can cut that with a knife. But I'm trying not to get people intimidated. Hmm. Well, I'm just saying yeah. you might run into this, so you can just saw it off too. Yeah, like right now, like I'm playing rhythm guitar and Yanni is soloing off of the rhythm. Right, I'm like telling you the basic outline, and Yanni's adding texture. So keep doing that. All right, but you're cool up so far. I'm great. Now, take these things, and if you have a pressure cooker, so now you got all these blocks of ribs that look like what you'd get if you order ribs in a restaurant. If you have a pressure cooker, take these things and put them in your pressure cooker and put an inch or two of water in your pressure cooker with them and pressure cook them at 10 pounds of pressure for 20 minutes. Now, do you, do you put any rub on that beforehand? Not yet. Not yet. You can... But I don't think it's necessary. Okay. I don't think it's necessary at this point. Straight up water out of the faucet. And if you don't have a pressure cooker. Put them in a slow cooker. Crock pot or slow cooker. 
If you don't have one of those, put it in a Dutch oven or some kind of oven-safe receptacle. Cover them up in water and put them in your oven or put them in your slow cooker and cook them for three hours until they're fork tender. You want to cook them until this happens. Until you could imagine just stripping them off the bone with your fingers. If you wait until it just naturally happens, it's too late. You got to get them at the point where you can handle it, where you could grab a little chunk of the, because the meat retracts and leaves little bone ends out there. You want it at the point where you could grab one of those bone ends and lift the whole thing up and have it not fall apart. But that if you wanted to tear it apart, you could. That is the moment to strike. In a pressure cooker, that moment lasts for minutes. In a, in a slow cooker, that moment lasts for a long time. Yeah. That's a, that's a large window to shoot for. Well, we did some the other day, and I want to say it was right at four hours, three and a half, four hours, and we felt like, had we not caught it right then and there, we had a lot of other stuff going on, and so we checked them. We're like, oh, it's fork tender right now. But they were at the far end of, of fork tender. Yeah. They were getting ready to start falling off the bone. And you'll notice, too, that you've rendered a lot of that tallow out because of the, the liquid, the surface of the liquid is going to be very oily. And that's now, really my question here is, and where I get tripped up and, and end up just saying, screw it and cooking the whole thing is... Cooking what whole thing? The ribs. Like, I, I just, it's not even worth trimming off any fat because I can't get to all the fat, right? Because there's so many anyways. layers in there, right? Yeah. And that's, that's why I'm just saying, like, do it a yeah. rough once over. Yeah. And I don't know why I do a rough once over, but this is easy to do. Gotcha. So you're saying you just rendered out anyways and... Because some of the fat's all right if it's hot. The next step, pull them out of the liquid and lay them on a tray and let them dry a little bit. Drain off and dry. Now you hit them with your favorite dry rub. Right? Then you walk over to your grill, your outdoor grill, and you throw them on your outdoor grill, and all you're really doing is warming them up and putting a little char on them. They're already cooked and ready to eat. And you take a mop, you take a half cup of cider vinegar, a half cup of yellow mustard, mix that up, throw them on your grill and baste them with the vinegar cider, the the vinegar mustard mop until they just start to char up and get all nice and warm and then you eat them. And you will never discard another rib the rest of your life. And you will hate the man that does. <laughs> Love it. Even call him Dude, stupid. Dude, it's so... <laughs> yeah, you will call him stupid and hate him. <laughs> now, I, I Is have, that good? I have left some deer ribs in the woods. Just the... Uh, they're each... You've said it before, you know. It, every animal... Uh, wild game animal is is its own beast it's different and i've the deer uh deer i got this year like that was a giant the rib section alone was a ton of meat and that definitely came out with me but you know montana you know end very end of the season some buck that's just been rutting like crazy and that rib meat looks like jerky about it's almost done jerky. And there's nothing on the outside of it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, there's no... I don't think there's any state where you... Like, like all the states have 
most states have what's called salvage requirements or want and waste laws. Um, and they spell out for you what you need to keep. Yeah. When I first moved to Idaho, you had to keep the rib meat. Is that right? And you had to keep the neck meat. And then they changed that law. And, you know, myself and my group of buddies that I hunt with were just wickedly pissed. Just because that, that is phenomenal eating. I think a general salvage requirement should be much stricter. I, I think they should be spelled out. It's fun. I love to read them because of how specific some states are. I think generally they should be more. I think it generally be good for hunters, good for hunting, and good for public perception to have much stricter salvage requirements. Yeah, the optics of it would be good. One day, this happened a million years ago, but one day I was really upset about some things that I had seen other hunters do and was really upset. And me and Yanni were driving down the road. You remember this? Yeah. And we look, and there's an elk gut pile laying out in a field. Mm-hmm. And I'm all mad about oh, something. But you had to preface this that we were talking about um, you're upset, and you're like, yeah, this is just not right. This is, it's, I forget what you were upset about. Maybe was it just some guys like were, were flock shooting elk or some something? Some guys like had got, we, some guys had gotten onto a herd of elk and were using text messaging where it's not allowed. We're using text messaging to like coordinate efforts on a herd of elk. Right. And uh, somehow that guy, we got to talking about taking stuff out of the field. And you were like, yeah, my dad, you know, and this, that, and the other. We took everything out. Like my dad had to go check other gut pile, other dudes' gut piles to get the heart. Yeah. And I'm and saying, liver. like, well, like, I didn't grow up that way. Even though I grew up hunting a lot, like, I didn't grow up. Like, nobody taught me, like, and plus, we, like, just dropped our deer off at the processor. But, like, I didn't know about shanks and neck meat and hearts and livers. And, sure, we ate, like, heart and liver, like, one night. And that was usually the night of opener in Wisconsin. We'd have, like, a meal of that. But that was it. Like, if I shot a deer some other time of year, like, it just, that didn't come home with yeah. us. So, anyways, yeah, we're driving down the road. We see a gut pile. And I jump out all in a huff and go running out in the field to go get the heart. And the heart's gone. Because you're like, I guarantee those sons of bitches left it out here. Yeah, and the guy had the heart. Then I ju- and then yeah. the guy had taken the heart, and then I got back in all back in a good mood. Nobody would hunt that way. And be a heart man. Right. But then I was like, yeah, those guys are all right. I got, uh, got in a little debate with my uncle about that particular instance. Uh, oh, the one I'm talking about. Yeah. And he uh, was like, you know, people got to eat. That's getting groceries. Bruh, bruh, bruh. And... I said, yeah, but because of the use of illegal communication, I feel that the the scale just tipped way out out of whack, right? It just went way too far to the hunter's advantage uh, versus the game's advantage, and that's just not the way the system's supposed to operate. And in that location, it's not open to your individual interpretation because it's just against the law. True. Like it or not, yep. that state has made that not legal. Yep. But L- listening to this, it's like it. It seems like more hunters need to make the connection to the food end of it to elevate that because you're talking about the the tongue and the neck and the shank and the ribs and these things. Most people are just discarding this. Which, if you know how to take care of that, it's some of the best eating. Some of the best stuff, you know. And it's is it just because a lot of hunters just want to grind sausage and want burger meat. Is it, it? Does it need to come in education of how to take care of those cuts and make them 
so delicious to eat. I mean, it seems I think like, it, yeah, I think education is a big part of it. Now, was I think it game that, warden telling you or me about how uh, in, this is in Montana? Uh, but he, he said, you know, three years ago, uh, not he never saw deer come through check stations that still had shanks. And what happened to him? They'd leave him in the field. Yeah. yeah, but now he's he feels like almost no shanks get left in the field. I had a I had a game warden mm-hmm. from a western state come up to me and, and 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 she's like i feel that because of your show i honestly feel that because of your show i see better field care how cool is that yeah. well yeah that's it i mean that's the end goal right and she said i feel like it's been a market difference that's awesome to begin like having conversations about this stuff it but comes I, down to work though yeah it's work well, i mean you're like when you're talking about the difference between what i used to do to get an elk out of the woods and what i do now like more weight on your back more time spent at the mm-hmm. carcass, you know, more time spent at the butchering table at home. Like, it just... Yeah. You'd be surprised how many people are, like, picky little kids, though. My kids aren't that way. My kids aren't picky little kids. But a lot of grown-ups are just, like, squeamish, picky eaters. Mm. Like, their parents indulged that when they were a kid or something. And now they're like, you know, I'm not going to eat that. Like, they honestly sound like that. Yeah. My kids so, are kind of mad when I bring home little four or five inch ribs off like the, like if you cut the rib slab in, into thirds and stuff, they like it if I just like leave it, the whole thing whole. <laughs> like that, they just have such a more enjoyable dinner when they just have like the giant bone in hand and they're I gnawing and pulling. They love it. Yeah. So I think there's, I think there's that. It's like being like a little picky squeamish person. And what he just said about the laziness. I mean, I guess it, it's extra work. It's just, you think if you were out there in that whole experience that you would just try and get every little ounce out of it, but I guess not everybody's wired like that, huh? No, and then there's the other thing, too. It's just, like, hard to learn how to do it. So yeah. it's really, but here's the thing. If you become a good hunter, that's hard. Mm-hmm. Like, it's hard to be a good hunter. Yeah. So if you have it in your brain to become a good hunter, which is extremely difficult, you definitely have it in your brain to learn how to do, like, a handful of procedures on how to cook. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But... You're right. You you see, and it's funny because hunting, like, you can't divorce hunting from its roots. Hunting is a, like, hunting owes its history, owes its inception to the fact that it was a food-gathering method. Correct. It's like a food-gathering strategy. And still today, if you go hunt with, you know, certain indigenous cultures, they have no, absolutely no waste. In certain, you know, depending, right. that's, a, that's a blanket statement. There's also cases where people have driven off you know 800 buffalo off a cliff and then butchered a dozen of them and then the rest rotted because they probably were surprised as well that 800 went over there they were just hoping to get a couple so i mean there's like there's times when that's not the case but like generally it's like food acquisition and wide utilization when we spent time down in south america they don't flay fish they cook fish whole and suck every bone mm-hmm so when they're done, there's a little teeny pile of glistening bones laying there. That's amazing. Head, every single thing, right? Hunting like takes its heritage from that, but at some point in time, in some people's minds, it got like divorced from food acquisition. Yeah. 
I'll talk to guys, be like big time hunter guys. I know they got a bunch of meat in the freezer, and you talk to them, they're cooking something different. Boneless, skinless chicken breast because it fits into my workout routine. I'm like, I'm like you of all people, but you of all people are cooking chicken tonight. Four or five bucks in the freezer. Oh man, yeah. Well, where are you at, Pooter? On your uh, would you prefer I call you Andrew for this? Sorry about that. <laughs> you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> what because. I mean, I definitely got into food, uh, really the separation between just enjoying eating food and actually cooking my own food, uh, because a, a combination of single parent home and, and having game meat in the freezer. So I was like, I could eat something out of a can or I could dig something out of the freezer. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you told me today that you haven't been, or you very limited on the big game hunting side of things. Yeah, yeah. I did not grow up hunting, um, but food was a big part of kind of growing up and, and and family holidays and that. So I, that's kind of the route that I got into food. But um, the experiences that I've had with hunting are with mostly with the Ronellas and, and and this kind of crew, which I learned kind of later. You know, probably in my late twenties, I kind of started getting into with you guys. Um, and that experience was just first being out, you know, in the in the wilderness and and, and having that whole experience. I, it was just over the top. But for me, the the second that animal got down on the ground, it just I, it just excited me so much to to be able to see it start to come apart. And instantly in my mind, I'm I'm thinking, okay, I can see that that loin, I can see that rump roast, and in preparations in my mind and the people that I was going to share it with, I mean that was the most exhilarating thing to me that drew me into it is is the fact that i can go do this on my own and then be able to turn it into something pretty good and then to be able to share it with everybody else i think that's really what drew me in yeah i don't think you ever saw it as anything even like with fish not that you not that you don't enjoy fishing but i feel like for you the link the food yeah the, the fishing hunting food link it, it was never like a thing that you sort of like discovered later. Yeah. It's like, I don't like with you, I feel like you always viewed it as a food thing. Big time, big time. Uh, but the experience that comes along with it is just like the, the biggest bonus there is because it's, you know, it's an amazing experience to get out there. Um, but yeah, with fishing, I, I, you know, I have friends that, that fish and that don't really like to eat fish that much. And it, <laughs> I'm like, well, why are you out there? You know? Uh, I always want to say, I think there's a guy I know that, I've met him a couple times. I, I heard about this aspect of someone else, but he's a duck hunting fool. You know, I think he hunts 40, 50 d- days every duck season, will not eat a duck. Hmm. But to his credit, he's cultivated like a, a large group of people. Um, in a, he, He's cultivated a lot of friends in an immigrant community near where he lives who love duck. Hmm. And that's, that's the thing that he does. Sure. He, he, he is very careful about getting the ducks getting them gutted and bringing to the people that he knows mm. want the meat and use it well yeah. but i just wonder like how could it be like what gets you up in the morning yeah well i mean look at fly fishing i hate to harp on the on on yeah, fly, what? fly fishermen but like thousands of trout caught by some of these folks every summer and 
No one's eating them. <laughs> For the most part, no. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, so he gets out in the morning and does it. But I kind of think also it's like he's probably bringing like a, cl- a, gr- a class of food. He, he's bringing like a, a class of food to someone who might not be able to afford that food. We got another friend down in South Texas who has a network of people that he brings wild pig to. Mm-hmm. And he said to us, if I wasn't bringing them pig, they're not eating meat. Well, not just wild pig, but the, wasn't all those does that he has to Some shoot venison off too. Their, That might have been. Yeah, and I remember him saying, this isn't like that they prefer this over the stuff they buy in the store. He's like, it's this or it's not. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. Which is hard to argue with. Mm-hmm. And the fact, just like going down, you know, to, to the fish market and looking at that piece of halibut and knowing if I want two pounds of halibut to have a few friends over for the night that I'm going to be paying, you know, upwards of $100. I mean, I know you spend the money and the gas and lure and all that, but it's, man, it's just so much more rewarding and enjoyable to be able to have that kind of quantity to to share. You no, know? it's the most rewarding thing in the world, man. Well, and you're living the good life, man, if you go, yeah. if you're, you know, and it doesn't take that much. I was talking to somebody else about this recently, about like what it actually takes if you don't own a fish shack, but to go to Southeast Alaska on like a very... Yeah you know, purpose-driven trip to be like, okay, we want to like bring home a bunch of salmon and whatever else we can catch and, and whatnot. And you could probably do it for not that. It's, it's not exorbitant, you know? If you don't go stay at a fancy fishing lodge. No, you market value, you're going to end up ahead of the game. Yeah. With, with the... with the. But again, I feel like the exercise of it and, and the act of it, I mean, that's like really enriching your life. You're yeah. doubling down, right? I mean, you're simultaneously paying for your food and your recreation yeah. with the same dollar. So. That's the funny thing that the conversation I have is the people are like, well, you ever imagine what that costs per pound? It's like, okay, let's figure out. You just went to Paris. You didn't bring shit home to eat from Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so what's that cost? It's like, what's that cost per pound? It's like, at least, like if you play golf, no one's like, well, what what that cost per unit? It's like you don't even have a thing to begin measuring. They don't even factor in their beers. At least I got 20 pounds of fish where you can begin having the conversation about something I got home for it. But no one presses a golfer every time he walks in to justify his outing based on what he brought home with him. Yeah. He didn't bring home anything with him except that he like, lost two golf balls. Yeah. So like, no one busts his balls. <laughs> about what it's cost them. But you go out and like bring a fish and be like, well, yeah, but what did it cost you per pound? I was like, what'd you do today? <laughs> like, what do you have to show for what you did today? At least I got something. Yes. And that is, I, I think that's the root of like my hesitation when, because, and I'm sure you guys have been there too. Like, we got a lot of guys, you know, you're kind of like, hey, catching up. And I'm like, man, yeah, I'm fretting because I got this going on and this going on. And, well, hey, man, I got, I got a bunch of elk in the freezer. So don't don't worry about it if you don't make it out. I was like, yeah, I don't want to eat your elk, man. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to be out there doing it more than anything. So Oh, there's yeah, there's that aspect of it, man, is like, I wouldn't. It's fun for me to cook for my family, and it's fun for me to cook for my friends. It's fun for me to cook for myself because, like, we went and got it. Yeah. That's the value. I would not do the things I do if it wasn't that way. I would never be like all excited to cook something I bought at Whole Foods for people. The way I get all excited to be like, check that out, man. 
Because it's a it's, damn mountain lion. <laughs> it's it's directly tied to the experience every single time. You know. Yeah, we were talking earlier. You know, you get to yeah. relive that experience and tell yeah. that story. And I'll tell you what, man. I've been digging into that uh, elk from a fog neck. And that's a hell of a story you're telling every time. You're like, yeah, we could have just left the other half there after that incident. But we climbed up in that tree, got the other 400 pounds, and then uh, walked it out of there. That's an intense story. Yeah, I was just telling a story the other day when we were up North Slope, you know, to somebody that has no idea what that's all about. And it's just keep reliving it over and over and over, you know? Yeah, up caribou hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Meat's long gone now, though. Meat's long gone. Stories live on. They do. Andrew, do you feel like when you're shoulder to shoulder with uh, any of the Ranella boys or whoever who's more on the hunting aspect as opposed to somebody who spends each and every day eight, ten hours a day in a kitchen, do you think you're approaching um, any of these cuts, the critter itself, whatever it may be, in, in a much different way? No, I mean hanging out with you guys for years phenomenal the way that you guys cook up some of this stuff you know i mean and you have a nice base knowledge of how because game meat is different than cooking domestic animal i mean it just hands down you're talking about more fat you're talking about you know the game being a lot leaner so it is it's uh i think it's a great relationship of give and take as far as you guys have such a understanding of how to use the game meat in its proper way where sometimes then maybe i'll come in and 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 put a technique down that's a little fancied up a little bit you know that's the way i look at it like i know like um, i think we're learning from each other oh yeah because i'm not like you're a thousand times better like you're a thousand times better at cooking and just chefing than i am what i know is i just have have had a lot of experiences with a lot of different types of game. Yeah. And I kind of know its attributes. Yeah. And know the general, like, approach to take with different parts of different game animals and, like, what sorts of things it could be used for. That's what I know that's not easily replicated unless you've been exposed to the things I've been exposed to. But the actual details of, like, assembling dishes. Yeah. I just don't know like you know. That's why it's fun for me to cook with you. Yeah, and vice versa. Like I'll, I'll be like, you know what's good to do with these loins is you like sear them and throw them in the oven. And then you'll go do that and you'll make a cauliflower puree and pickled red on. You know, I mean, like all the stuff that goes with it. And I'm like, now that, like, holy shit. I would never have come up with that. But what I did know is that this piece of meat. Yeah. And it's fun tends to be like best when prepared this sort of way. It's fun because a lot of times, like I'll let you kind of take that lead on how to, yeah, how to use that particular cut, and then I know the technique of how to then take it and elevate it to a different level, you know. But I think the reason you're such a good uh, ground up, like you're a good chef with seafood, is because of stuff you've been dealt with professionally for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't matter. You catch a halibut. Halibut doesn't matter if you caught it or bought it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you can, like, really learn all about fish. The way you can't really learn all about what you're looking at when you're looking at, like, different three dead deer laying on the woods, the you know, laying on the ground out in the woods. I look at them, I'm seeing something that 
you're only going to see after having had a lot of experience about like what's the difference between all those things laying there yeah but like actually cooking i kind of like i'm not that like i'm not really good at actually cooking yeah you hold your own <laughs> yeah i mean i can like cook like family style cooking you know but not like restaurant style cooking but see that's where i think the whole hunting experience came in that got me so excited is because a lot of times in, in commercial kitchen you're you're not you're not getting whole animals in you're getting cuts in that you know are broken down you're getting your primals and your subprimals and but to actually see the whole animal especially in its state from you know tracking it for days and 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 being out there in its environment and then to see it on the ground and then start to break down i i i think everybody that eats meat should at some point see that process just to get it yeah I find myself stressing, and I was just writing this actually in the introduction to our forthcoming Wild Game cookbook. I was writing about, particularly with big game, is I'm always pushing a cut-based approach to cooking wild game, to cooking big game. Because you'll find that you put up like a, you put up a recipe like, here's a great, here's a way to prepare heart. And people are like, oh, I see you had a thing up about elk heart, but do you have a moose heart recipe? I think a lot of hunters tend to like look at, um, they, they stress too much like what the animal is when it's more important to know what part of the animal you're eating. I don't approach, if, if I'm like cooking shank, I don't think differently about an antelope shake, a mountain goat shank, a whitetail shank, a mule deer shank, an elk shank, a half, well, half is a little small, a wild pig shank. I tend to think more like what's more important to me, not the animal that it was. I don't really care. I want to know what it was. What and all cut? my, like my wild game cooking is all based off the cut, not like what it is. Yeah. Like when you open up a, a big game cookbook and they have like elk recipes, and then you go and you flip, and oh, here's moose recipes. I'm like, dude, there's no difference between an elk recipe and a moose recipe. Yeah, sure, there's going to be flavor profile differences. I think from meat to meat to meat, but I don't think it's to the point where really you need to change the recipe. No, sure, you can adjust it, and you might have your favorites, but for the most part, yeah, what you're talking about is knowing how to cook. I'm like, yeah. you know <laughs> the techniques exactly. <laughs> How to handle these different pieces. And you're right. There are, there are, there's going to be difference between elk and moose, but there's also going to be difference from one moose to the next. Yeah. Yeah. And I so think as much as there's like, that's like special about the wild game that sort of like, you should be like, not instead of trying to cover that up, but you make the same recipe and you're kind of like, oh, yeah, you taste that difference in the caribou mm-hmm. or you taste that difference. Maybe you taste like the willow in the moose and the caribou, you're sort of tasting that lichen or whatever other north slope browse he was eating on and in the white-tailed deer you taste like the acorn and the corn and the soybeans well, that's, that's, yeah. that's the, the gmo <laughs> you taste the gmos that's is the bridge between the hunter and the chef though right i mean to know all the way back to the environment that you pull that animal out of knowing that the the down the line that the flavor profile is going to be different yeah know? but that's stuff that comes like almost after the recipe sure after the method sure. of preparation there are, like, I don't want to oversimplify this because let's just say you're talking about, like, the difference between whitetails and mule deer. Sure, there are fundamental differences between whitetail and mule deer, but those differences might not be as extreme. Those inherent differences might not be as extreme as the difference between one whitetail and another whitetail. Mm-hmm. 
if you were able to sort of like apply a number system to like quantify differences, a half-starved four-year-old mule deer that just was hung up on a barbed wire fence and got hamstrung by a coyote and then kind of healed up, but he's not doing real well. Like there's that animal. And then there's some two-year-old mule deer that's been hanging out in an alfalfa field. Those are very different animals. The difference between those two things is so much more extreme than the difference between a white-tailed mule deer. Right. It's just like, so that's all after the fact. I just think that like in cooking, you got to learn like, what is it that you have? Mm-hmm. We, when I was a kid, we cut up deer, we cut up deer, we cut up steaks, which included the backstrap, tenderloin, and most of mo- like the, the rounds and sirloins from the back legs, and then the rest was burger, unless we made jerky. So we would get done, and it, all that whole damn deer would say two things, steaks, burger. That was how I was brought up to cut deer. I now have a much more nuanced approach to it. Sure. And that just comes from experience, right? The willingness to have ex- the willingness to have experiences. Mm-hmm. There are many, many people out there that, and I still uh, hang out with some that it's like, no, that's the way you do it. Steaks and burgers. Yeah, it's like there is no. What's the difference? There is no difference. Like I eat hamburger helper. It all goes into hamburger helper. I'd rather some dude be eating his whole deer as hamburger helper than some dude sort of watching it in his freezer uneasily feeling kind of like vaguely guilty about it for three years, waiting for when he gets to go pitch it because it's freezer burned. Dude, I don't look down on any kind of cooking. As long as it's wild game cooking. I'm open to it all. Put you want to throw one last plug in? How do folks find you? <laughs> well, at this point, we're kind of kind of on a small small level up there on the island, and I don't yeah, because you anyway. got your main chef and job. Yeah, yeah. So that the the, the the catering is just kind of a side project. Yeah, but it's fun, and people oh, would yeah. love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. If you want to hire a guy that you can actually hang out with and learn a thing or two from, yeah, yeah. Instead of some dingbat caterer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, summertime is kind of the high season up there. And if anybody's talking about uh, San Juan Island, so it's it's a small population of people. So it's it's kind of a kind of a tight little community, but it's also a, a pretty popular destination for tourists. So there are a fair a bit of events up there that get uh, the need for catering. So, yeah, on island time catering. And right now we're just kind of getting it off the ground. So if you went to the uh, Chamber of Commerce, you'd find us pretty easy. And the other thing is, if you ever have, if you hunt and fish and ever wanted to have someone come and do small party events where someone who has really has the know-how comes and shows you just what is possible, with mm-hmm. your stuff. Could, could take that boring old venison steak. And How to like it. really do amazing stuff with, with your wild game for you and your friends. Um, I, I would, I would, I would, I would look them up too. Also, I believe, uh, 
He's my favorite cook. He's uh, single as well. So like, <laughs> and he's wow. single. Yeah, I out. finally get to do it to somebody else. And he's <laughs> single. And he's available. <laughs> From one single guy to another. <laughs> the most eligible bachelor of San- of the Pacific. Let's just expand it to the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. Perfect for that the lady's The most lunch. charismatic eligible bachelor of the Pacific Northwest who also cooks. Yeah, and if you live closer to the Intermountain Rocky... What am I trying to say? The Intermountain Rocky West. West. Intermountain West. Oh, there you yeah, go. Cal is available there. Most <laughs> eligible bachelor of the Inter Inter Rocky Mountain yeah. West. And I can lift things and carry them. <laughs> oh. uh, do you have a specialty? Like if, like if he's a sa- like, he's a saucy a, a he's a saucy uh, a in my man. personal endeavors. You mean in love, in love, you talking about love life? Or <laughs> That one's up to you. You can take it whatever you want. It's called the Magoo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I really like cooking seafood a lot. Um, you live on an island out in the ocean. Yeah. And it's just so delicate. And, and, and if it's handled right, man, it's just so good. Um, Anything in particular in the seafood world? Well, I think just out of the fact that I end up with a lot of it every year is is, is the big, the heavy hitters, this, you know, halibut, salmon, prawns lingcod lingcod and i think pound for pound lingcod stands up against anything i think it's one of my favorite fish um but if I, also, I could only eat one fish the rest of my life and they told me it had to be lingcod i'll be like cool yeah that's cool bro yeah if it's done right it's it's it stands up against just about anything wow but uh yeah you know i also like kind of just doing the fun projects uh making sausage you know on a saturday afternoon just putzing around the house and having a big cut of meat in the the smoker or or raising something down those are those are fun days to be able to just kind of have a leisurely pace at it and play play with something all afternoon you know and then be able to like i said a few times but be able to share it that's my biggest thing is to lucky enough to that it is my profession, but it's to be able to share those experiences and, and have people actually enjoy, you know, what I've produced. You make a million little masterpieces that disappear, right? I think about, you know, the whole span of my career, it's like... There ain't nothing left. It's all yeah, gone. Every time. <laughs> every time. You think about architecture, you think about, you know, people that build stuff and it's artists that hangs for a million years. Every day you're building tiny little masterpieces that might take you three, four weeks and just snap like that. It's gone. You know? I never really thought about it that way, but, but you're right. But, but when you're, you're doing eating. like you're like eight step duck pastrami and oh. all of a sudden it's just gone, you're like, yeah. son of a bitch. Yeah. And there's sometimes, that I, there's sometimes <laughs> that I covet things that I almost don't want to, you know, like like that, that the perfect stock that, you know, that I made one a couple weeks ago. Just this, it was a beef stock, but then I cooked it. I mean, it was days and days and days. And I got this thing down to a demi gloss where I started with 12 gallons and I got it down to just, you know, a couple and i I just like covered it i didn't want to use it for anything because it was like this is a masterpiece in itself but that's where the reward is 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 seeing people that that you know that enjoy it because it is it's gone every day you do it and it's gone i'm going through that right now where i have two pieces of sable fish in my Mm -hmm. freezer and you just want a whole lot and i like black cod oh okay and i like knowing they're in my freezer more than i like eating them mm-hmm. 
because I like eating them so much. Yeah. I like knowing they're in there. And I find myself like, I catch myself opening my freezer and staring at my two big pieces of sable fish. <laughs> being like, fellas should probably eat them. They ain't getting better. <laughs> they ain't getting better in there, you know. But then you, you're just you're just waiting for the perfect scenario, right? Yeah. You're waiting for the right people to come over and the right preparation on it to, to make them. No, I got a plan for them. Yeah. I got a plan for them. It's called lunch today, right? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got my uh, my brothers and their wives and whatnot are coming for Christmas. Right. Coming for Christmas. Yeah. Yanni? Anything to add? Closing thought. Yeah, I was thinking about how... I, oh, can I interrupt you? Yeah. How are you liking that brand spickety new First Light? Uh, Lo- loving it. What do you guys call that? A heli? What do they call those things? Henley. Henley. A Henley. Yep. That's that's a sweet piece. Top secret, though, isn't it? No, man, we can talk about her now. But uh, you wore that love it in Colorado, right? Love it. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a little bit thicker. It's oh, got some uh, spandex. No, that that one is a hundred percent wool. Um, the wool on the inside is just fleeced. Oh, is that what it is? Which it's probably is, as thick as a slice of bread, man. I love that thing. Though. It's uh, it's little little. <laughs> old school wool technology that we stole from uh the uh swedish military i think oh yeah now you're good five percent that's nothing that's just you're right you were well no but i think it it serves a purpose you guys didn't put it in there for shits and giggles oh you got squid ink on this thing no my kids were painting ornaments the other day and then showing them to me and i didn't know i didn't know that they had just finished painting the ornaments and so i've got paint on my phone and obviously on this shirt too. okay yeah I, I, correction the the this new henley uh is a, a i think 400 weight merino and there's 5% spandex in there. Because one thing that we dislike from tromping in the woods with pure merino is how it kind of bags out on the sleeves Yeah. Uh, over the course of a week. You know? Yeah. Do you feel like it's going to help in the durability too? Yeah. 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 So it's got just a little more like spring, a little more snap to it where you feel like, yeah, yeah. it's not going to get that sort of like loose bagging. You don't want to run home and wash it so it puckers back up again. Yeah. Right. That's what I call it is the, the repucker. The repucker. Yeah. And, it, you know, a big thing that, I mean, you guys do for us, and, and I try to get as many days in myself, is, is trying to explore the new items um, and and see if they're actually doing the things that we want them to do in the field. Because uh, they're just, you can't recreate that stuff. This thing's but, killing it for podcasting in Steve's chili garage it's just perfect podcast and outfit man mm-hmm. yeah you know and it's how do you test that you have a you podcast do a marathon sash yeah you gotta get poot down here and start going on it kelly got any oh yeah did you get Can a chance I get, oh i, I, I interrupted you to ask you about your shirt yeah yeah i was if admiring how attractive time you, getting, how attractive you look over we're there we're getting close to being out of time but um you're talking about how you try to eat a bunch of fish during fishing or right after fishing season and sort of you know, by this time of year, now it's like late fall. You're sort of getting over eating fish, right? Because you've been eating a whole bunch of. Because I don't fish. like to leave it in my freezer as long yeah. as like I, red meat. I just leave in there forever, but yeah. I don't like I like to. But I've had the same thing happen with red meat. You know, like where I just had like the main thing in my freezer. I had like two elk. You know, and I maybe had another whatever. But for most part, I've just been eating elk and elk and elk and elk. And for us, that really like to eat only wild game. You you can't you can definitely get bored where you're like man 
just need something to switch it up. And I was thinking about that. And the answer is to be like the Stephen Ranella generalist hunter. Yes. And like this year, I'm like, all right, kind of had it in my head. I put it out there to the universe. I was like, I need some ducks. <laughs> then my buddy calls. He's like, dude, you want to go duck hunting? I got a sweet spot. So we roll in, boom, some ducks. So I've got like 10 ducks in my freezer. Critical. You'll find that Giannis talks about putting something out to the universe. And what that means <laughs> is he feels as though... Um, if you're thinking about it, it's kind of like a Lavian. Uh, it's not Lavian. It's Lavian <laughs> metaphysics. <laughs> is that just by letting it, just feeling away, and letting people know a way that you uh, a yeah, thing that you desire? It, uh, is it personal manifestation? People use that. They throw that term. Yeah. So it. Yanni's like, by he just exudes a feeling of wanting ducks. Uh-huh. And if he exudes that strong enough, the phone will ring. And it, in this case, it did. And he now has a whole bunch of ducks. <laughs> buddy, and now you got a sack full my, of squid. My buddy uh, Miller uses that for uh, work. When Work's he needs work? really slowing down. He's sort of like, he's like, hey, universe needs some work. Bring <laughs> 10,000 square feet, Yin. Um. He's a, he's, a tile, he's a tile guy. So 10,000 square foot house. There's a lot of tile. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of tile. But yeah, that's really helped me for like keeping on the 100% while a game, you know, menu and being excited about it is like having some fish, some squirrels, some rabbits, some ducks, some elk. The generalist hunter mm-hmm. and angler is a well-fed mofo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people like to Variety. only be like the, you know, big game, you know, white, big buck, white tail deer hunter where you just, you know, expand a little bit, man. It really opens up your menu, diversifies it. You can only stuff so much variety into a sausage casing. Mm-hmm. Cal, you got any final thoughts? I don't have any. Can you guys tackle for me? Just put this thing to bed, my mule deer neck scenario. Oh. You think you can do that in two minutes? I have this a whole mule deer neck. I wanted to wrap it in the call fat. And it's beautiful, big call fat, and roast it on the pellet grill. That's what I intended to do. And I and to give you guys the full story is, um, you know, it was a really tricky, steep spot when I was trying to get that neck out. Uh, a lot of the blood out of the uh, cavity came out and actually like gave the neck a real about half of it a good bloodshot appearance. So I took it home when I got home. And basically just put it in a, a very simple brine. I think I, I just kind of threw some odds and ends in there. But, you know, salt, water was, were the really the main ingredients. So I don't think there's going to be any other leftovers. But now it looks clean and beautiful again. And it's thawing out right now. Took it out before I came here to Seattle. I wouldn't do it the way you're talking about doing it. It would be an experiment. I wouldn't do it that way. I think you could do it in a pellet grill. The neck. But I wouldn't wrap it up in anything. I would do it in a pellet grill and be basing the living daylights out of that thing. But think of the loss of heat on the pellet grill, though. That, I'm saying what I would really do, do it. it? And yeah. I would devise a dish, like tacos or something, where I was shaving the neck meat off the outside, the nice smoky neck meat off the outside, and making some, and then shaving some more and making some. If you want to have it, you're going to serve that whole damn neck. You're going to need to braise that neck down. And you're going to need to take that neck and sear it on, like, give it a good rub. Get a gigantic pan. 
sear the whole thing all over the place, put it in a giant pot with a tight-fitting lid, and put it in your oven at 300 degrees for a ton of hours or in a slow cooker until you can pick it. Because you feel like it's just going to dry out on the grill? It needs needs a moist method for sure. It's not going to be tender. You could almost do it in reverse like if you did the moist method first so if you braised it to where you're almost getting to like you're talking about the ribs where it's still gonna hold together but it's it's tender and then put it into a smoker or a grill where then you could kind of infuse a little bit of that smoky flavor oh, and that is called the poot magoo <laughs> and there, that's that's now you're thinking that's a good idea pooter and yeah. there if you wrapped it in the call yeah yeah then that's just because melt right it would melt there. but it would also if you were getting too tender and it was starting to fall apart it would act as hold it because i don't no, think i can you're put talking. it in i don't think i can get it in the oven because i mean this I mean, it, it is a it's a hmm. got to be a 15 pound mm. even if you took uh, you know what you need is one of those little uh, electric roasting ovens. I do need a roasting oven. I might have one I could send you. Even if you took yeah. a rack out, you couldn't get it in a pan in there? Maybe, maybe I could, but I wouldn't ha- it wouldn't be a, a pan that has a lid at that point. Aluminum foil. Weston. Weston yeah. electric roaster. Sealed tightly as you can. All right. You think that's the way to go, mm-hmm. Andrew? Braise it. Braise it until it's just right there, then pull it out if you want to infuse that flavor. Then, then you could almost let it cool till till you could work it, wrap in your call, give it a put, good rub down, and then put it on your. I'd rub it down with at a minimum salt and pepper, maybe even something a lot zippier. Because this then is a visual that thing, right? Up. Yeah, it's no. a visual because I want that Fred Flintstone mega roast. Is yeah, yeah. I yeah. think I think Poot's idea, but island have, time, bro. You'd have to pull it out before <laughs> before it falls apart. Just kind of like you're saying with the ribs, yeah. Because you, you when I cook those necks down, I, what I cook a neck down is you cook it down and make like barbecue sandwiches with Me it. Me too. Yeah, I'll cook it down until it looks like you could shake that neck and a bunch of vertebra fall out of there. It look like something out of a museum. Yeah, I mean you can cook it down to where that meat, where you can just grab off fistfuls of meat off that neck rolls. Right. So don't let that happen. Uh, what, what did I just ask? About how to cook your neck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I was paying attention, right? All right, I, I think I got it. You good? You think you'd go call fat then, or sure, just save not? that for something else? All right, no, why not? Yeah, give her a shot. It'd be fun. All right, eat your deer meat. Eat all kinds of meat. Let's take care of it first. Cook it nice. Thanks for listening. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.